All right, thank you guys. So our Christmas messages this year are going to focus on worship and how does Christmas orient our hearts towards giving honor and ascribing worth in the worship of Christ and the Christ child, but his father as well. I want to take you to Matthew chapter 2. So where we're going to start today, Matthew 2, verse 11. I'm going to read to you a scene out of one of the first Christmases. And it says this, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. That happened on the first Christmas. It's a scene, one scene. Now, There's a famous movie that came from a book that is all about taking individual scenes and they made an impact on the person who saw them. The movie of the book is Christmas Carol, written by Charles Dickens. Now, you may not know this, but Charles Dickens, when he was only 12, his father was taken from him and put into debtor's prison because he could not pay his debts. And then as a kid, he had to work um, in a black black shoe blackening factory and it left an impression on him as he got older he cared a lot about the condition of kids and poverty and he visited some factories and saw where kids were were being made to work i think one was a mine and uh it it motivated him for social reform and change and i had to write this down because he was going to write about this and the name of the title of what he wrote, this is what it was, An Appeal to the People of England on Behalf of the Poor Man's Child. Well, he scrapped that, and then he wrote A Christmas Carol instead. And that was in 1843. Now, if you know the story, it's about Scrooge. Ebenezer Scrooge, he's a miserly old man. He's grumpy. He loves his money. And his worker, Bob Cratchit, he doesn't treat him very well. He pays him poorly. And what happens is he gets visited by ghosts. And these ghosts come and they take him to scenes. They take him to the scene of Christmas past. And then they take him to, there's the ghost of Christmas present. And then there's the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And each scene they take him and he learns something. He sees something and it makes an impact on him, an indelible mark that's made upon his spirit. In the past, Ebenezer sees his old boss, Fezziwig, and he's reminded that, He worked for a good boss that treated him well. And in that moment, he sees a woman that he loved. And and at that point in his life, there was all this hope. And yet, that's not what his current life is like. It's the opposite of that. And then the ghost of Christmas present takes him to the home of Bob Cratchit, his worker. And he sees how they live in poverty and they can barely make ends meet. And one of his children needs medical care. He can't afford it. And and, but, but the kids still, they, they, they speak well uh, of him. Bob Cratchit does. They, I'm sorry, they complain, but Bob Cratchit, he has a good attitude about his boss. But everyone else complains about him. He's taken to a party where he hears uh, people's true opinions of him. And he doesn't like it, right? And then the, the, the ghost of Christmas yet to come takes him to the future. And that's the most powerful of all because he sees what his own future is in store for him. And what he sees there is a future of death, a cheap funeral. He is an unmourned dead man whose death actually brings relief to others. 
sad state. Well, today what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you to three Christmas scenes. Three Christmas scenes. We're going to look at these three Christmas scenes, but our guide's not going to be spirits, but rather the Holy Spirit through God's Word. And as Ebenezer was offered a chance at a better future by taking the knowledge gained and charting a different path in his present, so shall you. You're going to see something in each of these scenes that I hope draws out something in you this Christmas. The first scene is the Magi and a Christmas pass. I read to you part of it, but I want you to hear it a little more. I'm going to read a few more verses. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 9 to 12, it says, After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, the first thing I want you to see in this is that the Magi understood the worth of the child. If I actually back you up a little bit earlier in the chapter, in verse 2, it says that they come into town and they say, we saw his star rising in the east. Now, this is important because it tells you where the Magi came from. And I often wondered, growing up, how did they connect the star to where he was? How did they know that this baby was special? What, what, how did they know? What helped them make that connection? Now, what, this is what's believed about them. The, the Magi came from the east. They were men of scholarship. And we just did a study on the book of Daniel. And if you remember in that study, Daniel wrote about this very time. He recorded it. And part of his recordings that he wrote down was a timeline. When this date, when this happens, whatever that date is, it's going to be this many years, the Messiah is going to come. And then other parts in the Old Testament talk about where this Messiah would be. So you have these prophecies that they've got written down in their part of the world. This is one of the ways, and it's believed that the Magi connected this. And I want to show you this. The next scene I've got says that the star that came from the east, this little red line is the map that would have recorded approximately where they would have gone. That's Babylon all the way to Bethlehem, and it's more than 700 miles. Now, what would possess someone to say, let's go on a road trip 700 miles riding on a donkey or whatever, or, or, or camels or whatever it is. They're riding in the weather and it's hot. There's, they, they can't stop at the Hampton Inn. You know, it, there aren't restaurants along the way. I mean, they're making this long, hard trip. Why? Because of what they had read and believed about this child. It was worth it. They understood the worth of the child. Daniel gave this timeline. Other parts of Scripture talk about where he would be born. And so they make the trip. They understood the worth. And number two, the Magi were prepared to ascribe, I use the word ascribe, worth to the child. Because after it says we saw his star rising in the east, they say, we have come to worship him. 
Now, this is interesting because this word worship, I studied it this week because when you think of the word worship, what do you think of? You think of what we just did. Somebody's playing music and there's words and we're singing along to the song and we're worshiping, right? But this word for worship that Matthew uses when he pens this is proskuneo. It does mean to pay divine homage, to worship, to adore, to fall prostrate down onto the ground. Now, when you do word studies, a lot of times there's two words that come together to give a meaning. And this word, proskuneo, the word pros, it, it means it's like a direction, towards, towards. So whatever the next word is, it's telling you where it's being directed to. It's, it's towards something. And the second word, and this is what's so interesting, kuneo means to kiss. I bet you didn't think that. The word worship is to kiss towards in a direction. That's what it means. To show affection. It's coming from here out and I'm putting it towards someone. Now just imagine there's a young guy and he's in love with this girl and he's going to go get her attention and he goes and he's throwing rocks at the window and plink, plink, and she hears it and she comes and she opens the curtains and she's looking out the window and she sees him. There he is. He's down there and there's his love. And so he, he serenades her. He plays her a song or more modern times. He has a boom box. I'm sure there's a movie about that, right? And, and the song's going upward and he loves her, right? And, and as his parting way, he does this and all the emotion comes out and his lover he goes what has he just done he has kissed towards her direction it is a show of affection that i how i feel about you this is the the etymology the history the uh, of the word worship it's what it means isn't that interesting right and literally to kiss towards someone to throw a kiss in token of respect or homage. Now, here's something else. The Magi came from the east. This is Persia, right? The ancient Oriental, especially Persian, like the Magi, mode of salutation between persons of equal ranks was to kiss each other on the lips. When the difference of rank was slight, they kissed each other on the cheek. When one was much inferior, he fell upon his knees and touched his forehead to the ground or prostrated himself, throwing kisses at the direction at the same time towards a superior. Think about that. The Magi have come from a part of the world where this is how they greeted. So if we're kind of at the same level, I'll kiss you on the lips. But if there's a little slight rank, you know, you're higher than me, the kiss on the cheek. But man, if you're way higher than me, I put my face on the ground. I can't even get near your face. I'm just going to throw kisses in your general direction. This was to show honor. This is the word worship. So it's not just singing songs, is it? It is showing worth towards the other person. And that's why I use the word worship. In fact, the word worship Originally, it started out worth-ship. The two words that came together uh, in English were worth and ship together. And it, it didn't start in religious circles. It started in secular circles and then jumped over into religious circles where they used that word worship. So, 
We're getting an idea here. Now, <clears throat> I want you to see the full scene of the Magi. All they did that shows honor and worth. I read to you all the verses, right? And I went in and I underlined and highlighted how many of those words were words of action. And I put it up here on a chart. When they were searching for the child, there's six things that's recorded. They're listening, they went, they're seen, they saw, they rejoiced, they're going. After they found the child, they fell down, they worshiped him. They op they're opening treasures. They offered, then they're warned, and they departed. And I even included warned and departed because that's a way of showing honor because they're protecting the child. They're warned, don't go back to Herod. If you go back, he's going to find out where he is and come and kill the child. And so that's part of what the action they do is in showing they believed in the value of the child. And all of these things, a 700-mile journey, the entire journey, the 17 actions that are, that are actually in this chapter, if you go into other verses too, they're a testimony of the Magi's belief in the special nature, in the special quality, and the special destiny of the Christ child. All this despite many forces working against them. King Herod wanted to destroy the child. The difficulty of the journey, physical journey itself, it was worth it. The risks were worth it. The trouble was worth it because the child is worth it. And they ascribe worth through all of their action. And, and this is why my last point is just to say that the Magi were men of action. In showing worth, they take action, and they go forward. Now, that's the first scene I want to show you. The first scene, Spirit has taken us back through God's Word to the first Christmas. Now, we're going to skip over present, and we're going to go to a scene yet to come, okay? And we're going to see something else. And this is in Revelation chapter 4, Christmas yet to come. Let me read it to you, verses 8 to 11. It says, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him, who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him, who is seated on the throne, and worship Him, who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now this is a wholly different scene than that Magi scene. In fact, the Magi scene is in the timeline of history. You could go back in time and find it. This scene is not technically not on a timeline. This transcends time. This is in heaven. This is something that's going on now, even in eternity. But it's yet to come in my sense that I'm not there yet, but one day I'm going to be there in the throne room. I'm going to see this very thing that John's being allowed to see. I want you to think about the answers to some of these questions, okay? Number one, who are the living creatures? Who are they? He's, remember, John, John is getting a peek into heaven. And he's just trying to describe what he's seeing. And he's I'm going to describe these creatures. And he's describing them, these living creatures. Well, 
I had a really interesting conversation with my daughter, Abby, this week because my daughter loves animals. If you come over to my house, we've got, I don't know, a whole bunch of chickens, roosters. We used to have a duck. We don't know what happened to the duck. There's like six cats, maybe seven cats. They seem to always be increasing because they just come out of the creation. <laughs> we got three dogs. We've got uh, fish. You know, she loves animals. The other day she, was, she found a pigeon. It was on its back like this, and she nursed it back. And the next day she set it free. She, that, to her, that is an accomplishment. She loves animals. And she has said to me, are there going to be animals in heaven? And, you know, she cares about that. And I said, well, this week I said, look, what I, look, look what's right here. These living creatures are a representation of the greatest and best of God's creation. They represent something that God made and it's around the throne. In fact, it's, 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 they represent all that is the mightiest and the grandest in creation. And she said, well, I bet it's a cat. I said, it's not a cat. If it was a cat, he would have wrote cat. He says creature because he's seeing something that is not in his encyclopedia of animals. It's something different. In fact, to him, it looks like an amalgamation of animals. It's a bunch of pieced together. But to her, she said, that's pretty cool, right? There's something in the future, but it's a representation of creation, the greatest and the mightiest and the grandest. Well, who are the 24 elders? They're also around that throne. They, later in Revelation, it tells us, they are representative of the, ch of the church of the living God. Something else that God created. He made us and He sent His Son and He died for us and in Acts chapter 2, you see the birth of God's church. The, the church is people. These are God's family. And they are a representation of that. Around the throne of God, physical creation, animals, greatest and mightiest, people, a representation of His church around the throne of God. What are they doing? Just like the Magi, as you read through it, you could see words of action. I put a... a, a, a a table again recording it. They say, they give glory, they give honor, they give thanks, they fall down, they cast crowns, they are saying. You can see they are also of action. They are taking action to ascribe worth, to give honor and homage to God. Why does God get praised? John answers that in verse 11. Worthy are you, o our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and, and power. And then he has this word, for. That word means because of. You get glory and honor because of. And the very next thing he says, you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. All of creation exists to bring glory to God. Not the other way around. And any type of theology you ever have, if it's man-centric, is off. Theology should be God-centered. And here in this little, we get a peek where John is saying that. Creation exists for your glory. Now, the other question I have here is, why is John seeing this? Why is he being allowed to see this? And, I, and this is part of the Christmas experience and getting to see a scene. And the answer is this, that John, in this moment where he is seeing this and then he records it, it becomes the book of Revelations, right? At that time, he is in prison. 
He's on an island called Patmos. He's lonely. He's separated from friends and family. In fact, the prison he's at houses some of the worst criminals, the scourge of the earth. And they're saying, you're, you're, you're with them. You're one of them. And not only that, but the church is being persecuted. And at that time, it would have been true for John or any other Christian at that time to say, it is not a good time to be a Christian because they were being persecuted. And the world at that time was rising up against the values of Christianity, the existence of the church. And if you're a Christian, you kind of felt like it, the world was against you. And yet what God does is, he says, John, I understand you got an earthly reality right now that's heavy on you. I'm going to open up heaven and let you see the throne room of God and see a whole different reality, an eternal, heavenly reality that is unchanging. John's allowed to see this different reality. In fact, throne, throne room of God. In this chapter alone, the word throne is used 14 times. In the entire book of Revelation, the word throne is used 46 times. There's something that John is telling you throughout all that reading, and it's attached to the word throne because when he uses the word throne in the context of Revelation, the word throne speaks of sovereignty, reign, and control. And one writer said, when you read in Revelation about the throne of God, it is a reminder that while chaotic events are taking place on earth, we should never lose sight of the fact that God remains on his throne in heaven. And even though John could be focused on his earthly re reality and dejected and depressed and feel like the trajectory of his life is just trouble. By looking into the control room of the universe, there's an encouragement there that there's another reality, a heavenly reality, an eternal reality, and that God has a plan for the future. And he changes John through that. And this is what we see. This is what we get in this. We get transitions, transitions in the heart of Ebenezer Scrooge. When he was allowed to see these events, Christmas past, present, Christmas yet to come, it changed him. In fact, the, 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 the one in the future really changed him because he was afraid, afraid of that future. And he said, I'm going to make changes now. And God doesn't use fear that way. We're to be motivated by hope. We're to be motivated by what we see in heaven and the reality of that. That's what motivates us. But yet, in Scrooge, you see a change, right? In the whole story, he comes back in the, into the present, and what does he do? I haven't missed it. It's still Christmas. Hey, kid down there, you know the giant, what is it, turkey that's hanging? Go get it. And, you know, and he starts making these changes. He's going to give Cratchit a raise. He's going he's gonna to pay for whatever medical expenses are needed for, for his kid. He changes. And this is what God wants from us. When we see the reality of what happened with the Magi, when we look to the future yet to come, it is supposed to bring about a change in us. In our Christmas past, there's something foundational, something about the Magi, the, ma the measure of worth in the Magi's journey, the measure of worth in their body language to fall down, to be prostrate, to worship, to kiss forward, Right? Um, you see that worth in their body language. You see the measure of worth in the treasure that they give. Treasure first to me in the expense of the trip. 
Secondly, in what they gave. Now, they were men of, of uh, they were well off, and you can see in their gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh are expensive, very expensive. And so they give a gift worthy of the child. But you see it in the treasure that's given. And all this in the background against a harsh reality, a reality that, number one, the, the journey is difficult. One, they had to do all the work to discern all the different things in the timeline to figure it out. And even then, they're just going out into the world. There's a star over there. You know, they're just trying to follow it. And then there's a king who wants to kill the child. I mean, all this is going on, right? Now, in the scene in the future, there's something that moves us there. The measure of worth from their mouths, the, the living creatures and the, the, the elders and what they're saying. You can see the measure of worth. The measure of worth from their body language in how they are interacting in the presence of God. The measure of worth from their treasure that is given. You say, wait a minute, Pastor, what, what treasure did they give? Did you read about it? Did you, did you, did you miss it? Because it said at the very end that they gave their crowns. They take their crowns off and put it there. You say, well, what is that? Because, see, when we die and we go, we leave everything behind. We don't take anything with us. All the money, all the cars, the houses, everything, the degrees, they're all going to stay here. And we go to heaven. And the Bible says we get rewards based upon how we lived our lives as Christians. So some of us, we're going to work and we're, we're building an empire here that is g gone, has no, nothing in eternity. But, like, here's an example. I, I, this is a hard one, but I, if you end up losing your life for your faith, you get a crown for that. That's a good example. Um, many of the apostles, the disciples, were killed for their faith. And they will have a crown like that. Well, there's, there's, there's all kinds of crowns that, that the New Testament talks about that you can get. This is, these elders, they got these crowns, but now when they're in the presence of God, they take their crowns off and they set them there because He's the one that has worth. What do I have to give here? I left everything on earth. What I have to show is this, and I'm going to give the one thing I got right there. And I'm going to give it to God because He is the one worthy. Now, each one of these scenes, right, they're teaching us something. And I'm going to come backwards to the Christmas present. And I'm going to try to pull out of these two scenes something for you today. Paul writes in Romans 12, verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your, listen to this, spiritual worship. There's that word, worship. What is you saying, Paul? To worship is to present myself in a way acceptable to you. And the thing I'm going to land on today is this Christmas season, I want to appeal to you, and there's four things I wrote down, to show our worth, to kiss forward, to worship God in this Christmas season. Here's the first one, number one. Let's show the measure of worth in the journey. Now, Christmas is busy. There's a lot to do, and when we start juggling all the added things in Christmas, sometimes we forget about the real meaning of Christmas. 
I want to make sure, and I, I exhort you to come. Come on Sunday and worship. Don't drop it. Now, some of you are shepherds. Some of you are wise men. See, the shepherds, they were there on that night. The wise men, they were late. That, that verse where it says they went in and saw the child, that word, the word for child there, it's not a word for infant. It's a word for he's a little bit older. They came late. That, the, God's church is made up like that. Some of you, you're shepherds. You're there on time and you're worshiping. The wise men, they're late. Don't be late. Let's try to be shepherds and let's try to be here and worship God. Come in and worship. And when you do, I'm going to read to you this quote from one of my favorite pastors, David Jeremiah. This is really my greatest hope for the Christmas season for you. He says, when, when we come to church, many don't feel like worshiping, but it is in the moments we don't feel like worshiping that we must. When we give our praise, we are elevated into the presence of God, and God just takes everything that's out of sync and changes it because we see things from God's perspective. In the same way that John, even though he's exiled and in prison and it's not a great time to be a Christian, he looks up into that throne room and it changes him in here and he worships. I know that we live in an age where I hear that. It's not an easy time to be a Christian. It seems like the world is, is shifting in a way that the values of the world clash with the values of being a Christian. And it can be easy to sometimes be overwhelmed by that. I want you to come. I exhort you to come and participate in our Sunday worships through this Christmas season because Jesus is the reason for the season. And when we focus, somehow God can take whatever the situations we have that are different from one another, that are difficult, and He changes it in a way. Just like John. And we see the real eternal perspective. The measure of worth in the journey, the measure of worth from your mouths. Psalm 98, 4 says, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Praise God for that verse, because some of us are not good at singing. We can't carry a tune. It does not say, sing if you're good at it. Sing in tune. Sing with a wonderful melody. No. Make a joyful. In fact, he just says, noise noise. Some of you, when we sing, that's how we describe it. That's a noise. But the emphasis is on the heart attitude. The joyfulness is here. Because of my, I've, I, I, I see the throne room of God, these Christmas scenes, they're motivating me. Doesn't matter what the outside world is. I'm, gonna, I'm joyful. I'm joyful because I know my future is secure in Christ. And what comes out is joyful. It may not be in tune, but it's joyful. That's what it advocates for us. And I want to say this too. This one point I'm going to come back to in, the, in our Christmas messages, <clears throat> but singing is a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit and with the Word of God. Let the Word of God dwell in you richly. And then it goes on to say singing hymns and spiritual songs. When the Word of God dwells richly in here, we become a singer. And when the Holy Spirit dwells in here, we become a singer. There's no such thing as Christians who are not singers. Singing is encouraged and commanded in Scripture, and it is inconsistent. Now listen to this. I wrote this down from another pastor. 
It's inconsistent to be a believer, but not a singer. When a non-singer becomes a Christian, they become a singer. Because it's what God does in here that transforms us into that. Make a joyful noise. The measure of worth in our journey, come. The measure of worth from our mouths, be singers. The measure of worth from our body language. You know, I picked up on this in both the Christmas scenes I took you to. There was a lot about the body language. The falling down, the prostrate, the, the action of going, the, 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 the laying something down, right? The, the body is doing something. Some of us, it's like we, we, we may stand and, and not ever do anything. And yet the the Bible calls us to be people of action, men and women of action. Now, see, this can be controversial in church because I come from very conservative Baptist church. This is how we worship. We sat and we sang. And on the third song, we stood and we sang. And on, you know, we had like certain songs we stood on and and we never did much more than that. Now I married my wife who comes from an Assembly of God church, which is the complete opposite, right? We came here and I said, let's visit your mom and dad's church. And I was like, whoa, you know? And her dad and I, we used to tease each other, right? He would say, your church is dry bones in a chair. And I would say, you're rolling down the aisle, hanging from the rafters, you know? We would tease each other. You know, they were more active. I want to show you this. William Hendrickson is a Bible scholar. He went through the Old Testament and he recorded all the ways the body was used in worship to God. Now just listen to this. Bowing the head four times. Standing with reverence and respect six times. Lifting the eyes towards God nine times. Kneeling with humility and adoration 12 times. Hands spread, lifted up to God 14 times. Prostration on one's face 20 eight times. And Hendrickson went on to say, if frequency is an indicator of what we should do, most churches got it backwards. Most churches are just bowing the head or standing. In fact, what we see people doing the most when they encounter God and they want to ascribe worth is they fall down on their face. And so one of my encouragements as I walk through this in this Christmas season, number one, come, the journey. Number two, sing. And number three, see how God might use the people of our church to do more than stand and sing. Um, Lifting your hands. It's not to be coerced, but it is to be permitted. It's not to be mandated. It is to be modeled. It is not something we have to do. It is something we need to have permission to do. There should be a freedom in that. And I try to weave this in when I preach because our church is pretty diverse. And sometimes people come from backgrounds like my wife and they're like, should I, can I, I don't know. And then sometimes people come from my backgrounds and they're like, what the heck? That guy's, every Sunday's a touchdown. You know, it's like, <laughs> and, and I, I, I try to get in the middle and say, it's okay. If somebody feels led to raise their hands, okay. If you don't, Okay. Now, one of the things that I really love, though, is when you're standing there, it's really hard for... I, I, I get ministered to when I watch people worship. Last week when I described everyone coming forward with those candles, I, I could feel myself getting emotion, just see people in action. 
even sometimes this kind of action, you can minister to others when, when, when you're doing that because they're seeing you in the presence of God and you're interacting. Now, just to land this thing, the last thing I want to say is the measure of worth in the treasure given, right? I mean, the Magi gave gifts, right? The, the creatures the, the, and the elders who were around, it says the elders took the crowns off and they gave them, right? And so here's how we're going to finish today. The, um, this is Communion Sunday. The last song is meant to lead us into communion. So as we are singing and worshiping, we're preparing our heart for, for the last moment of the service where we remember what Christ did on the cross. But I'm going to do something different. You look around, you can see in your seats, and there are these papers that have a crown on them. And what I want you to do, it's not coerced. You have permission to do it if you want. But during the last song, if you want, say, I'm going to come down, and I did it already in the first service. I got a crown. This is like those, those elders that represent the church. They said, this is the best I got. I'm in heaven. I'm going to take it off. I'm going to give it to you. I want you to feel the freedom to be, act, be in action and do that. You can come forward during that last song, and you take the crown. And, and I gave a pen because maybe you want to write something on it, what this crown represents, what is the most valuable thing that you have, something you want to give to Christ, Whatever can be different. I want you to come down and you put it in the treasure chest right here. It's just a different and unique way to participate in worship and to be people of action. And honestly, in the first service, just like those candles, it's moving to me to see people in action like that. But this is our Christmas theme. It's worship and how the nativity draws worship out of us. I'm looking forward to the other messages and seeing us worship during this season. Father, thank you for the gift of your son. And we're going to close our service out now and we're just going to lift our voices. I pray that through this month, we would be a people who would make that journey and that we would come, even though it's a busy time of the year, that we would make the sacrifice, that we would participate, that we would feel led to sing. Christians are singers. We're to be singers. And then, Father, we're to be people of action and why we don't want to coerce. People come from different backgrounds. Some may want to lift their hands, some may not, that we would feel the freedom for that. And even now, Lord, at the end, that we would be giving our whole life to you and just a symbolic gesture, these little papers, these crowns, they represent something, something different for everyone, but that we're giving our lives to you because you gave your son to us. I just pray that we could finish this service worshiping and then just go into that communion time where we're obedient to your word, where you say as often as we do this, we do it in remembrance. And we're going to remember what Christ did. It's unique, Lord. We're celebrating the birth of Christ, yet in communion, we're remembering the death of Christ. And let us close out this service with worship as we give honor to you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and we'll finish as we sing.